This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to the Friday Morning Break podcast with John Gibbs. In my quest to understand what schools are for, this week I'm interviewing an author, Laika Sharma, author of Curriculum to Classroom, and now her latest book, Building Culture, a handbook to harnessing human nature to create strong school teams. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back with my guest, Lekha, Lekha Sharma, who's written this rather wonderful book, Building Culture, a handbook to harness human nature and create strong school teams. And uh, as I was saying a moment ago, before we started recording, that was, that it was the subtitle that first struck me about this book. It's the, it's the emphasis on human nature. And I thought, as I read it, what a humane sort of book it was for a management book. <laughs> it, not only is it well-researched and lots of practical stuff, but it, it is, it, the emphasis seems to me to be on human beings in a real world and that schools are, schools are organisations made up of people of all kinds. So what prompted you to write this book? I know it's your second book. You've written other books. I started writing about curriculum. So my first book was, was very much talking through the journey of curriculum development in a school and it was a very much a warts and all tale around how we how we did that and the implementation process and what we learnt. And I think I kind of progressed through my career and I did a bit of work with the Teacher Development Trust and I was working on their um, MPQs. Really amazing time, actually, and I think very formative for me, um, looking at leadership development and the kind of ways in which we were developing leaders. And one of the things that the Teacher Development Trust is is really hot on is that idea of human, the human element of leadership, which I absolutely love um, and really their ethos really resonated with me. And then I kind of took a step back in my thinking and thought, well, curriculum, curriculum, teaching and learning, there's such a huge focus on that at the moment. We're in a really exciting time in education where lots of things are being taken from the world of cognitive psychology and cognitive science. And I just thought, what about all these other wonderful areas of psychology, uh, sociologies, you know, thinking about organizational psychology, what things could we potentially take from there that might support leaders in our school? Um, And I guess from my experiences of being a leader in a school and understanding what it's like on the ground, um, it just stood out as something that was hugely important is that human element of what happens in our schools. So that's probably what ins- inspired me to write the book. Yeah, I think that 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 came across <laughs> very strongly in your book. And uh, the if I could say there was a theme running through it, it would be the theme of human relationships. Um, you talk about the psychological safety, the culture of a school, the conversations, uh, being open in conversation, the kind of conversations we have. In, in all sorts of ways, you think, well, surely that's what you find in schools. You would find it. But I know from my own experience in the schools I taught in, uh, that that isn't always the case. That quite often the relationships in schools can be the problem. That there, that there isn't communication. 
let's take with this first this first idea psychological safety it seemed to me absolutely crucial to the notion of being able to speak freely and openly in a school is your experience that is something how important do you think that is i just think it's such I think it's one of the most important things when we're thinking about the work that goes on in schools, particularly because schools are incredibly complex and and challenging um, places by their very nature, you know, in terms of our purpose of what we're trying to achieve within schools. It's really important work, but it's really hard work. Um, And I think there are psychological safety, essentially that idea that you are able to talk freely share your questions, your concerns, your mistakes, um, I think is all the more important in schools because we we don't have time to waste and we, we want to make sure that we are doing absolutely everything for our pupils and in service of our pupils. Um, and so I, I just think having that ability within our teams to have those really honest and open conversations just saves us a lot of time. Um, and it also supports implementation not not only during the planning stages of implementation, but actually when things potentially don't go don't go well or don't go the way we want them to go, um, having you know teams which have a strong sense of psychological safety and, and members feel like they are able to say actually that's not working and we need to go in a different direction, I think is really important. That ability for human for teachers as human beings to feel secure because there's all sorts of things that might undermine that in an in your hierarchical organization i mean the people you work with are also the people who are going to evaluate you at the end of the year or in the year there's going to evaluate a process so that 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 conflict between formality and the formality the formality and yet the organizational kind of cohesion and subjectivity these are your friends these are people you go to christmas parties with these are people you meet in the evening and have to with and at the same time they're the people that are going to evaluate you and so on and that tension lies within schools. How can you create a system where, rather, well, a culture where people feel both secure in in their in their relationships, and yet you have a formality of of evaluation? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that trust and psychological safety becomes particularly important when it comes to having conversations about performance and feedback. Um, and I think it comes back to having. I think it comes back to, first of all, calling that out. And I think an awareness of that is really important to say that actually there will be conversations where we are having these direct conversations and we are going to give each other feedback. And that might not necessarily be feedback that feels great. Um, But this idea that feedback is, first of all, a gift and that it's shining a spotlight on what is potentially a blind spot for you. So there's a wonderful book called Thanks for the Feedback, um, and it talks about not the process of actually giving the feedback, but preparing people and coaching people to actually receive feedback really well. Um, Because as humans, it will be our natural tendency um, to, to potentially, you know, feel quite defensive when we get feedback. So I think that idea of psychological safety, that idea of trust, and it coming back to that work of kind of Brene Brown, for example, and she talks about clear is kind. And actually, if we're talking about people who we are really invested in, uh, who we care about deeply, and if you think about the word culture comes from the Latin cultus, meaning to care, actually, that the kind thing to do is to be clear, to be clear in our feedback, to be clear in our conversations. And actually, I would be doing you a disservice if I wasn't clear. 
I think actually calling that out, having that conversation around feedback, talking about not only the process of giving feedback, but getting feedback. I think all of these are things, practical ways that we can contribute to a culture of, and, and I talk about one of the later chapters in the book is culture of continuous improvement, that no matter who we are, we're on a learning journey. Um, and it comes back to what you just said, actually, about being in a hierarchy. Um, and I always find that that puts a certain level of pressure and tension on things because it, it almost puts you know leaders in a position of this hero who's got it all together, who knows everything and doesn't need any further development. But actually, if we as leaders are able to model that we are always continuously developing, no matter what stage we are in our career, it contributes to this idea of, well, we're all on a learning journey. We're all learning. And so actually, we're all receiving feedback. And the leader be asking for feedback on their performance, I think, can be quite powerful. You know, I, I need feedback just as much as I'm giving you feedback. Uh, well, it's a brave leader that does that. And, and also anyone, anyone in management who will have a tendency to try to manage from the top down uh, in an authoritarian way, in a charismatic way. Indeed, I think there's a long um, tendency in my career, I noticed over the years, to find to try and find the superhead, the teacher who would come into the school, swoop in and impose their, their, their charismatic leadership over the school and turn it around and so on. It's interesting because I think, you know, where there is improvement in schools... I would kind of argue that actually that's come about because those cultures of trust and safety have been created. And quite often, trust is established in places where leaders are able to share their own vulnerabilities. And actually, um, the, the and it, it is a really hard thing to do. And you're absolutely right. It's a brave leader. It takes a brave leader to say, actually, no, I've, I've messed that up. Or that's something I need to look at or rethink. But actually, in those really successful teams that have you know, brought about really great school improvement, I find that it's it's a kind of combination of the leader creating those spaces by sharing their own vulnerabilities, but still being able to have that competency and that assertiveness to to be the person that's kind of paving paving the the way forward. And is that the important thing that to get the staff to buy into it as a team, because your your book describes teams, to buy into it as a team and to to believe in it, it almost doesn't matter what the actual it is in a way. I mean, clearly, this, you know, it could be not very effective at all. But I mean, in the debate between progressive education, but in a sense, it doesn't really matter that does it? It doesn't really matter whether the kids are walking silently down the corridor. The important thing is that the whole school believe in whatever that is. And it seems to me what you're saying is that the belief in what the purpose of the school is isn't imposed from above, but is brought into by the whole organisation and is established through connections of trust and cooperation and teamwork and not through empty managerialism or slogans. I know, I think, I think what you're highlighting is that the purpose, it comes back to that sense of purpose and what the, school's, what the school stands for. And that might be, you know, that might be shown in many ways, so through their vision, through their values, etc., but what a school stands for is abs- have absolute clarity on what their what their why is, what is their purpose, and and what they are going to do to achieve it. And I think you're right. I think that purpose will look different in different places, and that 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 vision will look different in different places, and very much dependent on context. You know that you know it will very much depend on 
the demographic a school is serving, the aims and the, the purposes that have been collectively and collaboratively decided upon. But actually, yeah, it's that getting everyone on board, getting everyone to understand that really clearly. And that element of, I think, again, that culture of a purposeful culture is just again so powerful in the way that it can permeate through through an organization through a school a phrase i particularly liked in your book was confident humility as a management style the idea of being well confident about the direction of the school and your expectations and at the same time humble we're kind of all in this together and we're all going to make mistakes including me yeah so i think yeah, I think the reason, the way I kind of, the way it manifested to me is this understanding that culture is dynamic and therefore it has to be sustained. You know, there is an understanding that it is a journey, that it do, that, that work needs to be done in sustaining it. Um, and, but it is confident and it is a real, there is a real confidence there and, and a, a real belief in the purpose. I mean, a lot of what you're describing in the book, things like conversation, particularly with the idea of um, finding a balance between leadership and and having conversations which recognise, uh, I think you, the phrase you use, possibilities, conversations with possibility, so that you have a conversation in a school which says, well, what if what if we tried this? Uh, does this work? I mean, could could we do something differently? Even if so, the so the school is constantly self reflective. And yet the tension would be there between that and the the kind of confident leadership we're describing. Well, it's really going to be really difficult, isn't it? Do you sometimes think you've you've written a book here, which is going to say a lot? If I were a leader at a school, I'd go, oh, (laughs) can I actually do this? (laughs) I think the first caveat to this entire book is that I've made it sound very, very easy. You know, what I've tried to do in the book is pull together... um, you know, elements of organizational psychology with the emerging um, literature on educational leadership, which is pretty sparse. There's not much by way of educational leadership research. And I think Professor Coe's report was just the most encouraging and wonderful thing, um, you know, in my opinion, because of the fact that it was bringing to light this, um, the kind of leadership element of this. I think everything is a balance. There's, a, there's always a balance to be had. So I think conversations for possibilities are all about being open to having a conversation about change. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to change or it's going to be a constant cycle of change. I think the, the leaders who are leading on that change need to be really measured in their understanding of what the end goal is and planning backwards from that. I think where conversations for possibilities are really powerful is that it opens up that discussion as something more than just the thought process of one individual leader. It then becomes a shared dialogue. And that shared dialogue then can inform a leader's decision-making and sense-making around a particular, uh, a particular whatever it might be that they're discussing. Um, I think it still lies with the leader and, you know, to be making those hard decisions but actually it becomes much more of a shared endeavor and shared dialogue around, right, let me get and collate all pieces of evidence about what this could be. And then I can be in a more informed position about shaping this going forward. Um, and I think conversations for possibilities are great for that. I think it's also great to encourage others to be to be challenging respectfully, um, you know, upwards. 
and challenging our leadership team when we're talking about things. And, you know, I don't think, yes, people um, are necessarily the best things for school improvement. I think you need to have difficult conversations and say, well, what about this? And what about that? And could it be this? And and I think we need to equip everyone with that kind of vernacular around, you know, healthy debate, healthy challenge. So I think it can go hand in hand, but it is a very delicate balance. And I think, again, the work of leaders is so complex. Um, and I hope, and I guess it was really the intention of the book to just have a starting point around some of the commonalities that I was seeing in schools that have really strong team cultures and school cultures um, and that were able to use that to impact student outcomes to to change things and and being in those shoes myself as well I think has been a really useful experience so a lot of my experiences I think have um, informed the, the thinking in the book. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! You are listening to The Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. This week, my guest is Leke Sharma, author of Books on Education, and we are discussing her latest book, Building Culture, a handbook to harnessing human nature to create strong school teams. Have you ever had an experience of either in your own career or going into a school and you thought this is not the way it should be done? This, this, this has got a, I mean, you don't have to name any schools, <laughs> but where you thought, well, this is, this is, I'm learning, the, I'm learning how not to do it here. Because I, I, I can personally think I have. I mean, I, I taught at schools where there was a tremendously creative and cooperative culture and, school, and, and another school I taught at for a while where there was, a, well, frankly, a, almost a bullying culture. Where, where there was, was a good degree of fear and cynicism. And I, 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 would, I would say that was, it, was, it was overt. You could feel it in the atmosphere of the school. I think for me, the biggest lesson that I've learned around leadership and, and culture is that it, it takes time. It, it doesn't happen overnight. And it, it, you can have the best will in the world and all the right intentions and have all the tools in your toolkit. But actually, it takes time and it's it happens in the small interactions, the daily interactions that build up over time. Um, and, and we cannot expect um, things to shift at pace. Um, and, and I think it would be worrying if they did shift at pace because we want something sustainable. We want something with longevity that's that's going to... And that's the whole point of culture, that it's a long-term game, um, you know, that it can be sustained, that it becomes part of your how we do things around here. Um, so I think for me, you know, there's definitely been times in my career I've just had to go, no, Laker, slow down. This is, you know, Rome was not built in a day. You have to hit pause on this and and, and even pull back and say, actually, no, we, we need to. I thought we were going to do this, but actually had a change of heart. and We're going to go in a different direction because actually it's not the right time for us. And why do you think that happened and how did you react to that? Yeah, I think a lot of that was around um, rationale, me having a really clear sense of the direction I wanted us to go in. 
that, that not being really clear to everyone else. Um, and again, really important lesson learned was to make sure that those I lead had a really clear understanding of the why. Why are you doing something? What is the purpose of this? The so what? Um, and there's a there's a really great, uh, and, and I write about him in the book, Human Haruni, who's a lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School for Education. And he says, you know, it's usually registered as people whining. Like, why do we have to do this? But actually, that's a really great question. It's a valid question for people to ask. Well, what's the point? Like, why? And actually, we should all have a really clear answer for that. And if we don't, then actually we're potentially wasting really valuable resource, time, um, and effort and energy into something that's not going to serve our broader purpose, that's not going to serve our pupils, and therefore is unlikely to have any impact on on their outcomes. So yeah, I think that would definitely be something that I've I've learned along the way. It's surprising, really, how obvious that sounds and yet it's not obviously exemplified in every school that sense of having the big picture no you know sharing sharing in an idea of where this school is and what the purpose of education is for and the purpose of education can be can be can be pulled into the micro things like the end of term the the getting the exam results up this year uh, concentrating on the year 10s because there's something here making sure that we're ready for the next Ofsted so I think there's a there's a way in which the tide of our education system, particularly, you know, Ofsted's clearly in the news right now, uh, a lot. And there's a the tide has pulled schools into themselves, but they've become very micro concentrating on the next thing, the thing that has to be done. I'm wondering if well, I interviewed a, a guest a few weeks ago who had done a study of the Finnish education system. And in Finland, they have many of the features you think to yourself well goodness me this is this is the features you're describing in your book highly cooperative ideas they the the teachers work as teams the schools schools in different areas locales cooperate with each other to observe what they're doing and they don't have a an inspection system which is which produces you know which is outcome based alone which with, with hard edged judgments on a school to some extent, do you think the inspections, do you think the, the way we've done education in this country the last few years, as it were, particularly with Ofsted and so on, and the movement towards co- uh, competition between schools, has mitigated, mitigated to some extent against the sort of school you're describing? How can you be the school you're describing in this environment? And I think this is where the complexity lies for leaders, because leaders are torn between Ofsted preparedness kind of agenda versus real deep long-term school improvement and that tension is really really quite a challenging one for a leader and so a lot of the things I talk about in the book psychological safety you know trust a culture of continuous improvement become quite difficult to do in a context that's wholly focused on getting to a certain point and not thinking about beyond that point um, so yeah, I think it, it certainly made it a challenge for schools to um, establish some of the things that I've been talking about in the book. You know, having said that, I've you know I've worked with leaders who, who yes, you know have had to keep an eye on Ofsted and have had to do the preparedness that you would have to do, but are still really focused on creating that strong school culture, and it gives me hope that you know although it is 
incredibly challenging and no one's getting it completely perfect all the, all of the time and that's okay um that it is possible to create those kind of cultures and and i think to again stay focused on why we do what we do and and to make sure that the answer is never for Ofsted and again a lot of that comes back to the communication the language we're using in our professional learning sessions the language we're using day to day um are we talking about our purpose and fulfilling that or are we talking about ticking criteria for Ofsted and so that is very much a mindset shift and and I think you have to go in really clearly on that as a leader and actually make a real statement about actually we are here for our pupils to serve a particular purpose we're not doing this for Ofsted they will come along and do their thing okay but actually that's not why we're here that comes through so many different things the language the way you're doing things professional learning having a long-term aim and and the one thing that you said that really resonated there with me is transparency you know leaders do an awful lot of work behind the scenes around school improvement strategic thinking and priorities and mapping and all of these things that wonderful things that really heavy thinking but how often is that shared in a meaningful way with staff and actually how wonderful it would be if you know and I would encourage leaders to be more transparent about this is where we are as a school this is what we need to work on and what we're going to focus in on because it's important to us and this is the direction of travel and this is what we're going to focus on and it's not a million things it's three things and it's going to be the only three things that we're focusing on. It doesn't matter who comes knocking at our door. I think there's a there's definitely a balance and a te- there's a tension there for sure. Very delicate balance for leaders to to strike. I can I've certainly been at meetings in schools where um, a phrase something like, "Well, if Ofsted see this, we're in trouble." And you realise that what you've been told effectively is here's a game that we have to play, and we have to tick this box. Not this thing in itself is a bad thing, or this thing itself is a good thing, or this thing itself is what not something we believe in. And uh, having a school that believes in something, <laughs> and you think, well, obviously, what schools must believe in, it must be a very idealistic place to work in a school. You must believe in what could be more delightfully idealistic than the improvement of young people, you know, offering opportunities to young people. And yet it can be easily subverted into, as you said, I like the phrase you used, a tick box. You know, you, you have to achieve this particular thing to achieve this particular thing. Uh, the, right at the beginning of your book, in the first chapter, where you talk about the, um, the psychological safety, there was an anecdote, not an anecdote, a study you cite. And by the way, your book is amazingly researched. Goodness me, that must have taken a fair amount of work. How you, how you did that on top of being working as well, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, in, one, of the, one of the studies you cite was where a team that was judged to be a very effective team, they were working together, I think it was in the health service setting, had, were, had, had the study showed that they, they were, they'd recorded more mistakes and more errors, even, even though they were judged to be a very good team, than teams were not judged to be such an effective team, made fewer errors. And you think, well, that's, that's counterintuitive. Surely the, the good team is working like a well-oiled machine. And what the answer was, was fairly straightforward, that they were just more honest they were able to express in you know, the mistakes. And, you know, that old thing, you know, you learn from your mistakes. Well, there's a, there's a really profound lesson there that schools have to be honest about their failings. That's a hard thing to be, isn't it? Is, is it personally and in schools? I would, you know, and I think the idea of evidence-informed practice and evidence-informed research, I think, has a, has a role to play here. Because when we talk about evidence-informed best bets, 
we're talking about having a clear understanding of what works and having enough evidence to to back that up, essentially. And I think in a real practical sense, how amazing it would be that if the staff could come together and instead of talking about what's gone really well, which, you know, absolutely we should be celebrating, talking about something that's been implemented and went really badly and what they've learned from it, because it's natural, it's going to happen. It's implementation is incredibly complex and it's not always going to go the way we want it to go. But actually normalizing that, normalizing things not going well, but actually the, the skill here would be to pick it up quickly and to change course of action, um, to not get bogged down in, oh, but I've put in a lot of effort into this or I've spent a lot of money on that. Um, this has to work and I've got to prove that it works to actually normalize saying, well, that hasn't worked and we need to do a bit of a, a post-mortem and what went wrong and what we can learn for next time. And, and having that those kind of conversations, you know, alongside a really healthy culture of celebrating success and, um, and, and doing that too. But actually, why we're not normalizing it, I just, you know, I think there's a there's a lot to say for just kind of moving the ego out of the way and saying, you know, that didn't work, we need to move on. Let's, let's think about what needs to happen next. And that is, of course, so hard, isn't it to move to move the ego out of the way, especially when as a leader, as a manager, you're, you want to exemplify, you know, uh, confidence and uh, under, you know, leadership, <laughs> all, the, all the charismatic qualities that are that that could be you feel undermined by admitting that didn't work, or when someone stands at a meeting and says, "Well, that's a really daft idea," uh, and that idea that you can normalise and accept a certain degree of creative conflict within schools. They should they should be places where people have different ideas and uh, meetings aren't delivery. They can also be discussion. I mean, I think you devote the whole chapter to the idea of, of conversation. You know, how much conversation isn't just about how many pens we need next term. Conversation can be about why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, and I think that's, that's important. I, I remember I taught for a while in the United States and I, I remember thinking that the school I taught at, the high school I taught at, was very, very sort of hierarchical in the sense that they didn't discuss much other than things to do with how many pens we need next term and whether the photocopier is working. And the school I came from in the UK, there was a, uh, a strong sort of uh, theoretical, lots, lots of discussions were about, almost too much discussions about why we're doing this. And yet it, it did bond people together. You know, the, when you talk about why we're doing, why are we teachers? I mean, that conversation could seem like a pointless navel gazing. Yeah, I have a feeling it could be quite creative and useful and, and bonding. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think purpose is is something that we don't talk about enough because I think people kind of assume it is the fluffy stuff. You know, it's something we talk about on the inset day at the first the first day of the year and then we don't come back to it. But I think particularly when you're in the thick of a school year and it is just constant and, you know, 100 miles an hour, which schools tend to be, actually pausing to go, right, let's remind ourselves of our why. Let's remind ourselves of our purpose. And actually can be a really healthy way of deciding you know, whether to do something or not, to make a decision about whether to implement something or not. Well, actually, does that serve our purpose? You know, and this idea of moving seamlessly from task to purpose and purpose to task. I, I love that idea. Again, from Human Haruni, but he talks about this idea, like, what, what, am, what am I doing right now? And is this serving the overarching purpose? How often do we sit back and think, what, you know, even if it's really kind of a, quite a, you know, a mundane thing we might be doing day to day, but actually, is this 
helping? Is this serving my purpose? Is it not? And if it's not, why am I doing it? Because we are time poor as leaders, as teachers, um, in schools in gen- general, we're very time poor. So it's important we, I guess, cut all of the things that don't matter out of the equation so that we can focus on the things that do matter and do make a difference in terms of student outcomes. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. And studies of, of what, te- what most teachers most find stressful. At the top will be administrative tasks they don't feel are valuable. And, and of course, we, we are in a uniquely data-rich age. It's an astonishing the, what we can gather now. I mean, and the way you can survey both the, the, the students and the teachers and the, the whole process can gather information together to such an extent that there's a danger you start to serve the data. How do you ensure that a culture allows teachers to be free to be their own eccentric, quirky, in the classroom, doing their own particular thing, at the same time using evidence and using data effectively? I think a lot of that comes back to leaders having uh, very specific knowledge around things like assessment and curriculum. Um, and, you know, you, you can look to things like the, the EEF's reports, um, which talk about, you know, assessment and and how, you know, thinking about the work of Daisy Christodoulou and talking about assessment, how we use it and, and how we can make use of it. I think teachers and leaders having that up-to-date knowledge is really, really crucial. And I think that's probably a big caveat of the whole whole book is that, yes, we can have these brilliant, wonderful trusting cultures that are psychologically safe and wonderful but it all has to be underpinned by that domain specific knowledge around curriculum and pedagogy and assessment Um, because then what a leader is able to do is combine this knowledge of okay well I need assessment to inform teaching and learning I want it to be meaningful but I can't have it taking up more time that you know a ridiculous amount of time for my teachers it can't be onerous okay, so I'm going to decide that this is the best bet to go in in this direction for assessment. And now I can think about how I'm going to implement that and how I'm going to support the culture around that, that wraps around that implementation, rather than plowing ahead with something that potentially is going to damage culture because it is too onerous and because it is causing um, angst amongst a team. And, And actually that is that's a really dangerous place to be in because when you've got really stressed out teachers that don't have the bandwidth to explore, then you can sit for hours and talk about purpose and all they're going to be thinking about is the next day to drop. Um, So they need to have the headspace. They need to have the bandwidth to be able to explore these wider, um, these wider things like purpose. And the way to do that is to make sure that we've got really smart systems and structures in place in our schools um, that are well thought out, that are informed by the best bets and the evidence um, and making sure leaders are equipped with the knowledge that they need to make those decisions around not only what to do, but how to do it. Yes, and that, I, I like the use of the word smart there. And I think a lot of um, processes that can that are attached to assessment, and of course you need assessment, absolutely you do, of course you do, 
But when you when they become processes, as you rightly say, where teachers feel that oh my goodness, we've got to do the second assessments over this particular group, or my 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 data must be put in by the end of the week, and you're getting reminders on your emails, and you're trying to teach at the same time, and you feel that what's actually been created is a process that serves itself. In other words, the main objective of this of this data collection is the data collection, and yet finding a, a way in which that can be balanced the needs of the teachers and actually be practically useful. They can say, well, yeah, I'm doing this because it helps. You know, this, this, this informs my teaching. Hard, hard, again, hard to do. Goodness me, teaching's hard, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it's, it is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm retired now, so I can look back at this and go, goodness me, teaching's hard. One of the chapters in your book is called um, the, the Flexible School or Flexible a flexible approach to the school. So you've got this, again, you know, this, this is going to be difficult to anyone listening to this, that you've got to have tight ideas and um, uh, and loose ideas, autonomy with, of the teacher, and yet a kind of degree of uniformity as well. So, you know, good luck to you, teachers, you know, man managers, balance that. Be clear on what the school's about, but on the other hand, allow teachers to be creative and individual and eccentric and of and themselves. How, how do you how do you manage that? Good question. I mean, this is one of by far the most challenging things I think, and I, I still find this challenging. And at the moment, I work as a curriculum and assessment um, school improvement leader for a trust, so work at a trust level across schools. Um, and even now, this balance between autonomy and consistency is one that I find really, really complex. Um, I think it's about identifying what the and again I keep talking about purpose but if you keep coming back to the sense of purpose it just illuminates everything that you're doing because if I you know if I know that I'm doing and we take for example um you know a a teaching and learning pedagogy kind of framework for a classroom teacher as an example so I'm a senior leader I'm coming in and I'm saying well actually these are the these are the tools I'm going to provide you know, we're going to do some CPD around this and this is going to be a teaching and learning framework that you use. When we're talking about tight, it's about it's about selecting the kind of active and the EEF refer to it as active ingredients, the things that are really going to make the difference and really protecting those. And so those are going to be the things that we are unpicking and talking about in our professional learning sessions. Those are going to be the things that, you know, the common and shared language that we're going to develop. When we talk about loose, it's the recognition that there's a context to every single classroom that can't just be scooped up within one framework, one policy, one whatever it might be. So it's the ability, I think, for teachers and leaders to recognise that there will always be a context and we have to be context considerate. And so for me, a way to manage that is whenever there's implementation of anything through professional learning, for example, to have a follow-up where teachers are able to have a platform to discuss where they've had to flex. You know, this is how I've implemented it in my classroom, but this is the context of my classroom. And actually, I've had to do this slightly differently. And this is the adapt, you know, adaptation I've had to make. Because it's through those conversations that as a leader, you're able to say, but you've protected that key thing that we're trying to get really right, that's been informed by the evidence that we're trying to to really implement but actually you've adapted it in this way to meet a need and have those conversations openly as a staff so I think it's about going on first of all having a sequence of professional you know professional learning is really important because it allows you to go back 
and reflect in hindsight on where you have had to flex an approach or where you have had to adapt a particular approach. It also allows for that approach to then be refined at a kind of core level. So a leader is then able to take feedback from that and say, actually, is that something that had to be refined at classroom level or do I need to refine this at at this, you know, kind of core fundamental level? But again, an ongoing process of refinement and, and knowing that it's never done. And I think that's obviously something that with my curriculum hat on, I'm always saying curriculum is never done. But I don't think any sort of school improvement initiative is ever really done. I think you constantly have to loop round and cycle round to get it right. So yeah, the, t- the tight but loose approach, I think, and, and Jade um, Pierce, who writes a case study for that chapter, does a really excellent job of exemplifying what that looks like in schools. But I think it's, I think it's so important to recognise that context is everything, whether it's at a classroom level, whether it's at a school level, it just drives so much of the thinking around implementation. We have to be able to flex to, to take into consideration the context. And the context being the particular requirements of a subject, it's particular. Could the context be an individual? Could someone say, well, this is this particular process. This is the way I do it. But you'd, you'd find within that the core of what you want, I suppose. But Yeah, this is a tricky one because, yeah, I think... I think we have to find the balance between this is how I'm doing something and my rationale is that it's meeting the needs of the people in my class. If, but with, with this is how I'm doing it because I want to do it this way, personal preference. The problem with personal preference in my eyes is that there's no continuity or longevity to that. That person leaves and becomes a head of department somewhere or a head of year or goes on to wonderful things. And there's no longevity in that because that was their personal preference of how to do things. And I think culture is is more enduring. It's about getting everybody um, on board with how to do things so that that is instilled within the school. So that no matter who comes and goes and leaves, that's the culture that remains within the school. It's, it's long term and it's enduring. So I think it depends on rationale. Is someone saying, this is how I do it because I'm just set in my ways and I just like doing it like this? Because that's a different conversation to I'm doing it with a with a very real rationale that's um, that I've thought about, is considered, is, is rooted in my pupils and, and not in me. Um, and I think that, you know, I think at a leadership and teacher level, there's loads to be said about coming back to the pupils at every turn. How is this impacting pupils? What will this, you know, what impact will this have on my pupils? How am I going to adapt to my pupils? Whether that's at a leadership level and you're talking policy frameworks, all of that kind of stuff, or whether it's at a teacher classroom level and you're thinking, how am I going to adapt to meet the needs of my pupils? And it has to be the the core, at the core of all of the conversations and the dialogue that we're having, I think. So if you're talking to someone who says, well, I, I, I've never done that. It's not, it's not what I do in my room. In my classroom, I don't do that. And yet you feel that's important to the school. The way you would the way you would approach that would be say, well, let's let's look at the effect that has. Why why we're doing this thing, why I want you to do this thing. So you bring it back, bring it back to the rationale behind it. Yeah. And I'd also say, get just have a go. Have a go. Give it give it a try and just talk to me about the impact that it did or did not have. Because it's about opening up the discussion and meeting people where they are, not where you want them to be. And I think that's 
I think the manner in which you have that discussion and I've I've been in discussions which are at the very extreme end of that which is like well no you just have to do it <laughs> and that's you know that's not where you want to be as a leader you want to be having that discussion around okay well let's talk this out let's talk about this and what where are we getting the evidence from this and what's the rationale and is it you know how how does this fit in with the wider context of our school improvement plan but again if it's if a teacher doesn't know what the wider context of the school improvement plan is because it hasn't been shared it's very hard for a teacher to then understand where they sit in that bigger picture which is why I would really encourage leaders to and and it's not about sharing all of the nitty-gritty documentation with teachers just a one-pager a one-pager with your three four priorities on it for this half term for this term for this year um and, and talking about how everything you're doing how that fits into serving those three or four things and also it's 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 if the teachers the staff all of them as a team because your book again is about teams uh, believe in what they're doing as opposed to feeling it's being imposed upon them and I, again I, I remember being at a school which was which was failing it was doing very badly and it um and there was a real sense of them and us that the managers said things in meetings and people walked out afterwards and said well that was a load of rubbish well that'll never work and yet they wouldn't say it at the meeting comes back to that idea again of being, you know, able to speak up, able to say, able to trust, able to believe that you're part of this whole process. Really, again, difficult, but yeah, yeah, just so, so, it's sort of so obvious and yet so difficult. I think that's one of the wonderful tensions about your book. It's like, you read it and think, well, yes, of course, I agree with this. You know, trust, conversation, rethinking, um, being evaluative, being honest, all these things must be, must be true. And yet they're so often not. So I like the fact that you give some really good case studies and practical advice, and it's rooted again in a lot of a lot of research that goes went into the book here. When did I, one of the things that I think happened? Maybe it happened before I started teaching. I'm not that old, but one of those things that happened during my career maybe was a feeling that teachers became a problem. As society, you know, we 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 were. I mean, most notoriously, Michael Gove described teachers as the blob, and a feeling that if that what the good manager would do would be to root out the bad teachers, get in the good teachers, and make sure we're all doing our jobs properly. That feeling that, that teachers were in themselves a difficulty and had to be managed properly. And I don't know what your book is doing in a sense, is saying that's, that's completely wrong. You know, you can trust teachers. They can, they can trust themselves as well. I mean, if, if I was reading your book and I was, wasn't a manager of a school, I would think, well, yeah, I'd like, I, I, yeah, I'd like, I'd like Laker to be my, my manager. I feel, I feel we'd have a good conversation, <laughs> and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be judgmental. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's exactly what the whole premise of the book is around: is this idea of being developmental, not judgmental, in every lens, you know, with whatever you're doing, and creating that. All of the things that I talk about in the book is about creating those kind of safe cultures where. The focus can be on school improvement for the pupils and and the impact that it will have on pupil outcomes, rather than anything else. You know, and Vivian Robinson talks a lot about making sure that leaders are focusing their energy on the core business of teaching and learning. And actually, the best way that we can do that is by making sure that we are all bought into this idea of focusing on that core business. And in order to do that, there needs to be the, the conditions need to be right for that to happen. So. I think we need to empower and trust teachers and we need to treat them like the professionals that they are. 
And that involves having conversations. And that, you know, I would welcome teachers coming to me and saying, actually, I don't agree with that. And I think too many leaders think that it's a sign of success to have everyone say, yeah, cool, we'll do it. And then leave the room and say, oh, that was rubbish. I don't want to do that. But actually, you know, we should be welcoming that dissent. And I, I remember quite vividly something that I would always do ahead of any sort of implementation plan was go and speak to someone I knew would hate it and ask them to just poke all of the holes in it. What? Just tell me how much you hate this. Tell me what's wrong with it. Tell me all of the things that you you, you would say you don't like about this. And it would give me really great food for thought. And sometimes I'd sit there and go, oh, that's a really good point. And it would just stress test that thinking and that planning ahead of going ahead and sharing it more widely. So yeah, I would say to leaders, welcome it. Welcome the discussion, welcome the dialogue, because that we're in such an exciting age where teachers are just, you know, full of this you know, big brains and full of all this wonderful research and all of this brilliant stuff. Why aren't we should be discussing? That's the way we move forward. That's the way we make progress. show is brought to you in partnership with Jomcat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out! Visit jomcatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! That reminds me of a sort of uh, complete, not in teaching at all, but something in, in, in history where the, the new leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, released from prison Andrei Sakharov, the, the dissident. And he said, uh, he said, well, I'm releasing you from prison. And they met, met, met Sakharov and Sakharov, well, you just say, look, you've released me from prison, but you know what's going to happen. I'm going to criticise you all the time. And he said, that's exactly why I've released you from prison. Our society needs that. Well, that, that, uh, in a big picture sense, one, someone in the school that is going to be a good, useful person in the school is the person who is brave enough to speak up and brave enough to say, well, I don't, well, why is that? To be the critic, to be the, to be the useful critic. As you say, that, cre- that creative dialogue, which can be probably quite uncomfortable for, for leaders. And yet, you know, buy, buy into it, accept it. The continuous improvement, you end the book by talking about continuous improvement. Someone might say, well, don't we know how to run schools? I mean, surely we've been teach we've been teaching since the you know since since Roman times. But in in a modern sense, we've been you know schools have been developing and developing. Why don't we just simply you know do it like it was when I was a kid, and that's how we know what? Why is that? Why is there a, an ongoing dialogue in teaching about how to do something which we've been doing for decades and decades? I think that you know the uh, evolution of educational research has completely, I think, revolutionised the, the way we teach, and I think has offered us insights into how pupils learn, and therefore has huge implications on what we do in our schools and how we do it. I really look forward to a time where the same can be said for educational leadership, because you know the the research is not as well um, established in that area, and it's something that I, you know, what the research I do refer to in my book is from organisational psychology. I'm, I kind of refer and make links to Robert Coe's paper as well, but actually, I think that has changed 
the trajectory of school improvement massively. And so I do think we need to constantly be questioning what are the best bets? How are we how are we going to get this right? And how can we be even better at every point? And I don't think that there will ever be a point where we should be, you know, sitting pretty and going, oh, it's all great. And we're doing really wonderful. And we can just kind of cease thinking about stuff. And, and you know, that goes for both schools that are forming not so great and schools that are performing really well. I think there's opportunity in both to have continuous improvement conversations about whether it's your curriculum offer, pedagogy, um, and, and hopefully in the future as well, leadership and, and how we're doing that. That's interesting, the point you made there, I thought was so good that the that there's tremendous understanding of memory, of cognitive science, of um, neurologic neuro, neuroscience and the workings of the human brain. We've advanced hugely in what and how we understand learning and the processes of learning. At the same time, schools are still largely sort of 19th century in structure. You know, if someone came by, I think I said this in a previous podcast, so apologies to anyone listening to this. But if you went, if you if you took someone from the 1880s and dropped them into a school today, they'd say they'd know where they were. And say, so, I'm in a school. It looks there's all sorts of differences, but I'm in a school. I can tell there are kids sitting in rows. There's someone instructing from the front. So that that idea that we've managed, we've used institutions that are really quite conservative and backward looking. In a period of time when we know so much more about young people, emotional development, psychological development mental health and all these things that should be informing what we do in schools it's a, again it's one of the, i think that that seems to be a theme of our conversation a kind of balance and attention between really quite difficult decisions to make yeah and i think that's 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 the really important point is that we are letting those best bets guide what's happening in our classroom and the thing i that always really stands out for me is that what are the best bets for leadership then? Because we've got this large body of knowledge that through things like the, the National Professional Qualifications, this amazing opportunity for leaders to, to really get to grips with the, the core knowledge they need to be really great leaders. But it's that implementation, that really messy side of leadership that deals with actual people on the ground that are, you know, disparate in by nature and have different views and are, you know, coming from different places at starting points and coming from different perspectives. How do we do that and get that bit right? And and it's always that bit that's kind of really stumped me as a leader. And I've only really learned through experience of implementation and getting it right and then getting it really wrong and learning from that and kind of muddling through. Um, so I really, and I think Professor, Professor Robco's paper was really hopeful in that sense because he was synthesizing the literature that that was that is there and actually some really interesting findings from that echoing some of the things that I mention in the book around you know management factors like trust and, and psychological safety was promising because it I think it, it it bridged a gap because there's organizational psychologists look at businesses all the time and think how do we get leaders to be better business people for the purpose of increasing profit and I just always wondered to myself, how how are we applying this knowledge to our schools and how leaders are leading schools when we have a really important purpose, purpose that goes far beyond profit making? But actually, how are we best informed to think about how we are doing things in our schools, not what we are doing, because there is so much research and 
And, you know, no doubt that will continue to grow. But actually, how are we doing it? And what what should be guiding our thinking around how we're doing it? And there's lots of great tools out there, I think, for leaders in that domain. For example, the EEF's implementation guidance is a wonderful tool that I would encourage leaders to to use if they're thinking about you know any sort of implementation be it a small scale intervention or something more whole school but it just scaffolds the leader's thinking around right what do I really need to think about ahead of this during this and to sustain this and I I love that um I love that as a toolkit but I feel like there's so much more to be learned um about about how we can get it right in schools and make sure that we've got really strong organizing frameworks that are having impact on student outcomes we're coming to the end now, <laughs> and I, so my last my last couple of questions or question is: you call your 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 subtitle of your book is harnessing, or part of your subtitle is harnessing human nature. You chose that, I think. If you if I if if a, if you were to give advice to a school to a leader of a school, and uh, and they said, well, how can I? How what do you mean by harnessing human nature? How can I do that within my school? What would you say? I think I would say having an awareness of some of the key the key principles that I talk about in the book. Things like how we can create psychological safety, how trust works, the idea that we need to get it, give it to get it. All of these things, I think it's about having an awareness of them is the first step really to knowing how to, you know, let it augment our practice as leaders. So I would say consider how often our implementation plans impacted by human thinking or feeling and just have a think about that because actually just an awareness of that will hopefully nudge leaders thinking around this to consider how they are doing something and the way in which they're doing something the manner in which they're doing something whether that's the smallest decisions around language choice or whether that's larger decisions around how they're conducting meetings to ensure that everyone feels safe to share and have a voice I think awareness would be the first step and 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 then hopefully what I'm really hopeful for and I know that there are um, people in the sector doing some amazing research around culture and how it can impact um, student outcomes I'm really hopeful that we have more research around this in the future that can can more strongly guide our implementation within schools thank you i'm going to end it there because that was such a wonderful summation of your book and it was so uh, it captured the spirit of your book which while it's a, a handbook and a management guidance book it's also very i thought very humane and it was uh, centered on being people in schools and not just systems so Lekha Sharma, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Lekha Sharma. We were discussing her book, Building Culture, a handbook to harnessing human nature to create strong school teams. I found it a useful reminder of how schools and indeed any organisation should be properly managed. It's not only a handbook that really any managers or indeed any members of an organisation would find useful, but also it highlighted the particular nature of schools, the creative, practical endeavour in which they're involved, how the tensions within schools between necessary information gathering, necessary efficiency, and yet a degree of creativity has to be balanced. 
when that can only really come about through discussion and a recognition that schools are special places engaged in a really rather idealistic pursuit to prepare the next generation, to prepare the future. If I were to imagine a school as described in Laker's book, I'd imagine one with lots of discussion, a great deal of respect, collegiality, an emphasis on human beings, not on empty managerialism. A useful reminder in a week with the Deputy Prime Minister has effectively gaslighted the nation, asserting that his bullying behaviour was little more than a figment of their imagination and their snowflake inability to deal with hard and harsh management. A reminder to all managers. Thumping the table, shouting, barking out orders, being demanding, actually, is poor management practice. You can find this podcast now available on Podbean, on Spotify, and multiple other platforms. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.